Hey, hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick minute before we start today's show to tell you about another great podcast, Good Morning Liberty. It's hosted by our friends, Nate and Charlie. They've taken on the onus of trying to change people's minds of how people view libertarians. And they're doing this by leading with a message of compassion first. They're looking at the way in which policies impact people and using the principles of liberty to provide compassionate solutions. I know it's amazing, right? So much more effective than just typing loudly and screaming to yourself and commenting on Facebook statuses. But they're actually giving you tangible ways to talk to other human beings about how liberty is compassion. Amazing, right? So Nate and Charlie, they have a, uh, a background in healthcare. They actually own a healthcare IT company. So at times like this and times of crisis uh, that we have in this country right now, a great podcast to tap into to get their perspective. You can check it out five days per week. So if you need that uh, daily hit of liberty, please check out Nate and Charlie over at Good Morning Liberty. We are born free and we will die free. Time in between, though. That's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. I got another great episode lined up for you guys today. As you know, on this show, it's all about giving individuals a platform to share their story, to uh, tell the world how they overcame certain obstacles that were thrown in front of them, be it uh, spending time in prison, overcoming addictions like today's guest, and digging into how they did it and providing some inspiration for everyone out there as we go through, especially right now in these difficult times when we could all use a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of motivation. Uh, before we get into today's show, I just want to remind everyone, if you haven't yet, if you've been listening to this show for a little while, a couple of episodes, or for a long time, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do it. helps us out. If you haven't ever left us a uh, nice little five-star review and a comment, would be awesome if you did that too. Brian and I have a uh, show coming up, a bonus show that's going to be in the made feed where we answer questions that were left on our five-star Apple podcast reviews. So check that out. Also want to promote Mark Claire's episode 500 is coming up. That's our Monday show, our flagship program. And uh, he's going to have on a lot of exciting guests so make sure you can actually be able to watch that live uh, if you're a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride. So check that out. You'll also get it early if, if you're in the Pride as well. So you can join the Lions of Liberty Pride by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. All right, let's get into today's show. My guest today on Finding Freedom is Christy Lashober. Christy had a thriving business as a wardrobe stylist in Southern California. She was born with a medical condition and uh, became addicted to opiates as a child. After nearly 10 years of sobriety and ending a marriage to a police officer, Christy relapsed. 
this change in trajectory led Christie to trying methamphetamine and eventually to selling to a Connecticut priest who the media dubbed Montessor Meth. As a first-time offender, she was sentenced to 60 months in federal prison. She did her time in five different facilities, including her last two years at the maximum security FMC Carswell in Texas. She was released in 2017 and uh, graduating with honors from Southern Oregon University was her first accomplishment. Christie continues to be a fierce advocate for prison reform, leading to the fight to remove the criminal history box, that box that you check on all those college applications um, in her state and advocating to provide opportunities for formerly incarcerated individuals to attend college. She's also a speaker, a community resource director for nonprofits, and the co-host of an emerging podcast called Survivors of Addiction. Christy, welcome to Finding Freedom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, you know, I think we have a, a lot to talk about from the current podcast you're doing today. We'll probably talk about that last. I kind of like to go through uh, linearly uh, sort of your, your journey here and uh, give you you know a platform to, to share your story. So we'll start here at the beginning. I think a good place to start is really childhood and where you grew up, what your early years were like. So if you could kind of start... But by sharing, uh, really, what, what what's your story from your early years? Uh, well, I grew up in Orange County, California, and I had a loving family. Um, as you said in the beginning, I, I was born with some medical issues. So I um, spent a lot of time in the hospital as a child. And so... Um, my mom and dad were young and, um, they, they were kind of surprised of everything that was going on They having a child that was born with medical issues. And so it seemed like, uh, my first, probably, I don't know for sure, like five years I was in and out of the hospital and then it just kept going on throughout really to my teenage years. And, um, but I grew up in a great family close to Disneyland, went to Disneyland every summer with my sister, the family thing, and um, had parents that didn't drink or didn't do drugs. We went to church, lots of cousins, family trips every year. So I had a really nice upbringing, actually. And that's, I think um, I know, being, yeah, it was really, it, it's, it's not a story that you hear a lot of people in prison or people addicted. Um, but as I said, being in the hospital, that is, was my introduction into drugs mm-hmm. as a, well, I, as I, a I think, child. I think that's like, like you said, it's not a story you hear a lot. It's, it's kind of unique, but there's other stories out there like yours. Um, so I, I like this by, by sharing this and kind of getting this perspective, I think it's going to be very powerful. So take us through, I mean, you became addicted uh, to uh, to opioids, right? So how how did that come about? When when did you realize that it was an addiction? Um, you know, I don't know that I would uh, that I would have known the word addiction when I was in maybe like fourth fifth grade. Mm-hmm. I knew I thought it was so interesting that in the middle of the night from a dead sleep. I would wake up at the third hour and 58 minutes when you can have a pain shot every four hours. And um, I always thought, God, that's so interesting that my body immediately wakes up 
exactly the fourth hour that I can get a shot. And not because my, I was in pain and I needed it. It's just, my body was getting used to doing that. And I remember thinking that that was an odd thing. Now, looking back, I know my body was in that addiction mode. And so, um, you know, I knew I, I used it and took it and asked for it when I didn't need it for pain, Mm -hmm. but I liked it. I liked the way it made me feel. You said you were addicted. Well, you overcame the the addiction, right? And ended up getting married and you were sober for 10 years. So how did you go from, you know, this childhood addiction to opiates to being, to having 10 years of, of sobriety? Well, um, I was always given lots of pain medicine, even when I got out of the hospital, because I asked for it and I didn't, and I still went to school and got good grades and I worked. So I think doctors at that point, like in the eighties, the seventies, eighties, just gave me lots of it all the time. So as I got older, I like to go to parties and drink and do other things. So I'd always have my pills and drink or my pills and do drugs. And that was just the lifestyle. Um, as you said, I got married when I was 27. Um, and I still continued to do all of that. And then, um, one day I was driving to the airport to pick up my sister from the airport and I had taken too many pills and I got pulled over by my husband's sergeant right down the street, which was not, which was like the worst thing ever. Um, I was like, just take me to Tijuana jail. Don't take me home because I knew that was like not a good thing. And, um, and so I, the officer took me home and I knew that at that point, you know, okay, I know there's a problem. I have to do something about that. And, you know, when you're managing drugs and alcohol and, um, knowing kind of in the back of your mind that you should stop, but still, you know, that's a big, that's a big task in front of you. So at that moment I knew, okay, I have to take on that task. And I went to rehab and I got sober. So, so do you think that others around you knew about your addiction or did, I mean, you've been doing these pills for so long, were you able to hide it pretty easily or? You know, when you're addicted, you think you can hide it. I, I hit it, but they also knew, but because I was what they, you know, people say functioning, I could, mm-hmm. I worked at Nordstrom. I, you know, was in school prior to, and so I, I wasn't like sitting home getting high. I was doing other stuff. So people kind of made excuses based on, oh, she had that operation or whatever, you know, they just kind of that's just how it was. So um, I think a lot of excuses were made for me mm-hmm. up to that point. So, so you mentioned that after the incident, when uh, you got pulled over, uh, you went into rehab. So what was, what was that experience like? It was the first time I had ever um, tried to stop for a period of time. And it, I, I remember thinking how much of a trip it was to like, I could hear birds chirping, like everything such like technicolor. And it was, and I liked it. It was, um, it, it was really an interesting, uh, kind of very new experience. 
And then it got scary because I, you know, then feelings start to come. And I know looking back that I uh, managed a lot of feelings with pain pills. And so now all these feelings came and I'm used to like changing the way I feel by taking a pill. And Mm -hmm. so now you can't do that. So now what do I do with all these new feelings and emotions? So you went went through all of your teenage years and twenties with really just being able to just take a pill. Yeah. Pill or drink or yeah. Once you started dealing with that and starting to, you know, have to navigate through that without having the, the crutch being able to rely on taking a pill or drinking, um, was that really, was that difficult to, to navigate even after you got out of, of rehab? Yeah. Um, I remember one of the times I had gone to a doctor for something for my kidneys and they said, Oh, we'll get you some pain medicine. And it was like, Dada, like, shoot. And I said, you know, that's okay. I'll just take some Tylenol. And I, when they walked out of the room, I just started bawling. Like, what am I doing? This is this new life I'm giving up that I really wanted to do, but it was so new. Um, And I had gone to AA because there was a meeting by my house in Aina Point and that was, and they met every morning at 7am. So I would go there and I met amazing people and a sponsor. And so I just stayed close to them while I worked Mm -hmm. and learned about sobriety. So what ended up happening when, uh, when you relapsed? Well, I, I ended up prior to that, after I was sober for a little bit, I started my own business as a wardrobe stylist. Um, I had, like I said, worked at Nordstrom selling shoes and, um, I had a lot of people, my clients asked me if I could come to their house and help them with their clothes, put together outfits to go with these shoes I was selling them. And so, um, I'd always wanted to do that. So I started that business. I was doing that for many years. It was really successful. And um, I liked being sober. I was um, going to adopt a child with my husband. And so things were going really well. And then all of a sudden, when things weren't, I didn't share a lot about my emotions. Um, My husband had had an affair while we were in the middle of adoption, which was a big deal for me. And, um, my father was dying of cancer, who was my hero of my life. And I thought I should be able to handle these emotions. And I kind of, I didn't talk about it. Even when I went to the meetings, I didn't share a lot. I just listened and which I do things differently now, but I um, didn't share uh, my emotions. And so I relapsed one time I was in the hospital and for a kidney thing I hadn't been in in a while. And the lady, the nurse asked me if I wanted a pain shot and she said, I'll get you one. And it was that moment. And I thought, I don't really need it, but a little bit of relief sounds really good. Just a little bit. I thought, you know, one, it's not going to hurt. No one's around me. They're ask, they're offering it. And, um, but I knew that that was going to take me down another road and it did. So where did that, what happened from there? Well, I, uh, you know, it was a whole ordeal when, when you, when you know that they're giving you a shot and they put it in your vein and it's a whole experience. And it was just, it just rushed me right back. And 
I loved the way that it felt. It was like coming home kind of. Um, and then when I got out, they gave me a whole bunch of pills and I took them at the time I had been seeing somebody um, and he had relapsed on methamphetamine. And then he had called me from where he was in Palm Springs and asked me to come pick him up. And I did. And um, then I dropped him off at the hotel and then went back to the place where I knew he had been and, and said, let me try some of this. Um, I thought the crazy thinking is, well, maybe if I try a little bit of this, then I will not do any more pills. And then I could be done with that. And then this for sure won't get me addicted because I've, you know, tried cocaine, whatever in the past. And I'm fine. That was a party thing a long time ago. I don't do that anymore. And so that wasn't the case though. And then that just grabbed me in a way that I had um, not experienced since pills and I couldn't stop. And up, up until this point, you were never really selling pills or selling no. drugs. Yeah. No, I never sold any drugs, any, any pills, anything. I never, I never sold, I never sold it. No, someone, you know, I would do some and then they'd say, Hey, we can sell you more. And then you can just, um, you know, for a lesser price and sell it to somebody. And, you know, I thought, okay, I could do that. I'm a entrepreneur, you know, I'm a wardrobe stylist, business person. So I understand business and, you know, this will just be for a little bit. And I just kept going and going and it just, um, it became, you know, you're more in denial and guilt and shame. So you do more, it's a whole vicious cycle. And then, um, someone had said, Hey, there's this guy in Connecticut, you know, you can mail some stuff to him. And so, I, we did that and come to find out he was a, a Catholic priest, wow. which I had never met at the time and still have never met in person. That's crazy. So, so you were yes. sending stuff to Connecticut to a priest, but had no idea that it was a priest and he was distributing it there. In the beginning, I didn't know, yeah. but I did end up knowing okay. that he was. He was a secretary to the bishop there. And I knew he was using Mm-hmm. So I thought, yeah, I knew he was using. Just to go, just to go back to to one thing you were talking about in the hospital um, when you relapsed, and, and they gave you the shot. And maybe you know, maybe I'm just being naive here, but I guess the the doctors would have no idea that you had addiction problems, or is I guess that's pretty standard that that they don't know that. Yeah, no, they don't know. I mean, my other, my, like a normal doctor would have like a PD, not pediatrician, but a general doctor, but um, this guy who was at USC and now they didn't know. And, you know, like I said, I, I appeared to be somebody who, you know, was, didn't have a problem with, mm-hmm. with drugs. And so they, they gave, they always gave me a lot, <laughs> you know, like at one point, even prior to that, that a doctor in Newport beach was giving me, um, t- 200 dilated every three weeks. That's, that's a, you know, hardcore thing that, that, you know, that they shouldn't give just a regular person okay. <laughs> on the street. <laughs> that's not dying of cancer or something horrible. That's not to blame. That's just, that just perpetuated an addiction. It's crazy what they used to give out. And I mean, it makes you want like to, did the doctors know what they were doing? I mean, obviously somebody knew. The pharmaceutical companies knew knew what they were doing yeah. to to a certain extent. 
But, yes. Uh, just uh, craziness. Yeah. So when you ended up getting arrested, can you take us through how that went down? Did you have any idea that uh, that was coming or did it come out of nowhere? Um, prior to, we had gotten a little indication, um, because money was shipped to us and drugs were shipped out and they didn't make it to each spot. And so we're thinking maybe feds or someone was, was maybe either, um, either, uh, what's, what's the word I'm thinking of, um, went in the middle and got it. But like Mm -hmm. I said, I, I, I was never, I never really thought about being arrested. I was married to a police officer. I said, I would go into the jails and bring him lunch. And I was part of that world, the police officer world. And so I never really thought about getting caught. It was, I don't know why, or thought that I was doing, I mean, I knew what I was doing, but it was always, well, we'll do one more and that's it. And so, um, we, I was in San Clemente and, walking outside and there was a gentleman that was um, walking down the street, rolling a baby carriage and he, but he looked disheveled and he was staring at me while he was on the phone. And so something told me like, okay, this is, this is not, this is not right. Something's up here. And then I got in the car to follow him. That's how bold and ridiculous And so I saw, I was thinking, I hope there's a baby in that baby carriage. And then I looked and there was just papers. And when I drove by him, he was on the phone still. Then he looked at me and I looked at him and then I looked in the carriage and there was nothing in there, just papers. And so I drove back around and went back home and um, uh, we... Did you immediately think that he was... He was a something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But then I thought, well, why wouldn't he come to the door and arrest us? You know, why, why would he just be strolling down the way? And then I'm looking around, there's no other people, Mm -hmm. but we ended up um, leaving the house. That was at Chad's house, um, the guy that I was with. And then we went to my house and we um, had tickets to the consumer electronics show in Las Vegas at that weekend. So we thought, let's just go. And we did. And the whole time we thought, well, that must have been, you know, that mu- I, I must have been wrong because no one came after us. No one, you know, they we seem to have just left. And um, I'm thinking there's, you know, they they would have stopped us or something, but they didn't. And then um, I think it was two days later, they um, there was like a knock on the door or not a knock. There was some some noise at the door at the hotel in Las Vegas. And I thought, wow, those maids are being super loud. And then all of a sudden, you know, door crashes down and the guns drawn and feds are feds swarm the hotel and have us get on the floor and ask where the guns are, which I didn't have any guns and never had a so gun. They did a no knock raid in a hotel. Yeah. And what they did, I later found out they did, um, Kevin, the priest at the same time he was on a plane getting ready to go to London. So they stopped him, I think at the airport or maybe at his house somewhere on the way to London. And they got us in Las Vegas, another guy in Connecticut. And they even got my ex-husband in California as a sheriff at the same time, wondering maybe if he had something to do with it, which of course he didn't have, he didn't even know anything about it. So Hmm. they got everyone at the same time. 
That's crazy that they would do a no-knock raid in a hotel. I mean, they could just come up when you're walking around in Las Vegas, just, oh, gotcha, you know, just arrest you right there. <laughs> but no, got to do a dramatic raid, busting down right. a door in a hotel room. That's right. Uh, it the was theatrics ins- of it. Yeah. So you, you get arrested in, uh, in Las Vegas, and uh, what happens from there? Uh, we're on the floor for a long time while they're searching everywhere. Um, they didn't, there was no drugs to be found. Um, there, uh, there was some GHB that they had, that they had said that they thought was, um, meth, but it wasn't, it was a drug that, that was, there was a little bit there. And then we got in the car in the back of the police car and that pretty much started the journey of being sentenced for five years. We originally, we were in Las Vegas for a while and the, um, the judge there was going to let us go on our own recognizance, but the, the, really that afternoon that we were going to walk out the door, they stopped us and said that the magistrate in Connecticut wanted to see us. So we couldn't leave. And so we ended up never leaving until I got out. So the before. magistrate in Connecticut wanted to see you. So did they extradite you to Connecticut then? or Yes. Yeah. So, so where was your trial in, in Connecticut? Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah. When I was in Las Vegas, the girls said, you know, they're, you're going to go on Con Air. And I thought, there is not a Con Air. <laughs> you know, I thought that was just like a movie with, uh, what's his name? Nicholas Cage. But yeah, there's, there is a Con Air with everybody shackled and it was intense. So you, you were talking earlier about, you know, feeling like, you know, being, you know, your ex-husband was a police officer. You felt like, you know, you were on that side. You can right. picture yourself being in prison or being in jail at this beginning part here. So what was that what, what was that shift like immediately when you're sitting in that jail cell that first night or those first couple nights? I mean, what was your what, what kind of thoughts were going through your mind? Well, the first probably week I was withdrawing. So I kind of went into, I think my body went into like a hallucinogen, um, almost like, I don't know if it was a breakdown or what, but I don't remember the first week really. And in fact, I ended up in the hospital because they said I was dehydrated and um, I was acting crazy. Uh, I don't remember being in court in Las Vegas. I don't remember any of that. So after... After that, there was, it's a little more clear. Um, I think I, I, I was in shock most of the time that this is where I was and that I was not getting out. And um, I was in Las Vegas for probably a month. Um, it was a big room, uh, like a dorm style room with a bunch of girls. And um, I, was, I was in shock, really. Take us through the, the trial. Well, did, did it go to trial or it was there a plea deal? No. Plea deal? It was a plea deal. It's interesting because when I got, um, when we went on Con Air and we didn't know where we were going, I assumed near Connecticut, but they don't tell you anything. And it was storming. It was like the blizzard in 2013. And so I just had on a camouflage short sleeve t-shirt, which they don't care. They don't give you any kind of coats. You're standing in the middle of the blizzard and the marshals are wearing full blizzard gear except you can see their eyeballs and then you're just in a short sleeve shirt and you know chain shackled with everybody and um we finally got to 
um, Connecticut and the, I, I was supposed to go to Rhode Island, the detention center um, for pretrial, and they ended up forgetting me. So they had, they took me to Danbury, which I, um, uh, you know, was the first time that I saw people going to prison for all these years. And they had me go to solitary confinement, which I hadn't heard about. I've never been in before, which was super scary and pretty much cracked me. Um and then I went off to Rhode Island and was there in a pre-trial for almost two years. Um, I was out for a little bit at um, for the Salvation Army in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, but for the most part, I was in the Rhode Island pre-trial detention center, which no outside, there's no one, no outside at all. So you're inside for a couple years. And I ended up getting sentenced on my birthday uh, August 21st, 2014. So, so why were you 14. held for so long pre-trial? What, what was delaying the trial? They, um, it was right when the two point reduction was being tossed around. So I think that's, I think that is what gave me a few less years because originally they said 10 minimum mandatory 10 years, which mm-hmm was, you know, unheard of, I thought for somebody who, you know, I'm just, I'm just a person who's addicted, who sold drugs to, you know, I, 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 that's when I kind of started to learn about the craziness of the length of sentences that they give people. Mm-hmm. And that you really, when you're new, you it's like a crash course. The, my attorney was desperately trying to get me to tell on my co-defendants. Um, one of which was a man I had been with for a while, for many years. And so I thought, um, you know, he said, Christy, you better tell on him. If you don't, then he's going to tell on you. And I kept saying, he's not going to tell on me. You know, there's no way. And he said, Christy, everybody tells. They tell on their mother. They tell on their brother. Everybody tells. And if you're the last one to say anything, then you're going to be the one holding the bag for 20 years. And that's what happens all the time. I, I didn't know that. And it wasn't really until another girl I was in there with, I was trying to decide what to do. Of course, my family's like, yes, you better tell. And the attorney's yelling, you better tell. And I'm thinking that just does not feel right. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not, if, I mean, I didn't just stumble on this person doing this. I was right there. So how that's not right. And um, the gal said to me, she said, Christy, you have to do whatever you're going to be okay at night, laying your head down with your eyes closed. You're the only one, you know, what, what's going to feel right to you. And I said, I, I can't tell. And so I did that, which created problems, but no one in my case told, you know, so it made them mad for a while, but then they tried to work together on that. And um, anyway, we all, we all got five years, each of us. And I think it was with the two point reduction and um, yeah, they ended up doing five years sentence. On my so birthday. was the was the priest? He was included in your yes. in your case. Okay. Yes. Uh, so when you got into, I mean, well, I guess you spent so two years pre-trial. How much time did you spend after after your sentencing? Then before you got out, uh, two years, a little over two two years. I ended up getting out. Uh, February 17, 2017. And I went in January 10, 2013. So, so about two years. And you were in, for your pretrial, you were in a federal prison for that, right? Yes. So the whole time you were in federal prison. 
So what, what was that experience like? Boy, that was, uh, there was probably about 20 girls, um, on my, in my pod, the rest were men on different floors. Um, you know, you're in a cell by yourself. Um, I was far away from home. I mean, Rhode Island's about the furthest you can get from Southern California, I think. So I didn't really get any visitors. My sister came, um, I really didn't even want her to come because I felt like I, I felt so much shame and guilt and I didn't want to taint her. I didn't want to taint this, the, the grossness of prison. Um, but she ended up coming and it was nice to see her. And, um, you know, it's, it's a camaraderie when you're in there, you have a camaraderie with the women. Um, you know, you're both, you're all going through like horror (laughs) and pain. Um, I had to learn how to uh, be, t- be tough, I guess, you know, be, be someone that's not going to be punked. And I, you know, I'm not really about that. So it was a whole new kind of way to live and maneuver in the, in my life. But um, yeah, it's, you know, on the sentencing date, it's really interesting when people go to court because they, you know, you get up really early in the morning and everyone says goodbye and you hope that they don't come back. But, you know, if you do, you get to see them again. And it's this whole weird emotional kind of thing. And I was hoping on my birthday, I'm like, well, I've been here a little over two years. So I'm sure, well, it's, yeah, about two, was it two and a half years? Yeah, about two and a half years. So I thought, well, he's going to let me go. I'm sure. I mean, I'm not a bad person. You know, I didn't mean to or whatever the whole thing was. Mm -hmm. But um, so when I came back that day, you know, the girls are like, oh, I'm so sad you're back, but hey, you want to play spades? <laughs> you know, it's like this weird, this weird um, camaraderie thing. Yeah, I mean, that's when when you're in there, that sort of becomes your family, right? Yes, definitely. So you did time in five different facilities, right? Yeah, in um, Las Vegas and Oklahoma was the um, transition center. I did, I originally was in Oklahoma, the county, not the federal, because there was no room in the federal and the county was a whole crazy experience. Um, And then uh, Danbury and Rhode Island and Texas, the the last, um, the last part I did in Texas. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to a camp. The judge had said, Christy, you know, he recommends me going to California camp and my attorney said, oh, you'll be frolicking in a camp. You'll be fine, you know? And so when I was in Oklahoma and the people going to California left and I woke up and I'm still there, you know, uh, and I realized I was going to Texas and you try to tell them it's a mistake, but of course no one listens and you're off to wherever they send you. Do you have any idea why they didn't send you to the camp? Yeah, well, because Texas is a uh, supposed medical center, and so I think based on my medical history, I my firm belief is that they took that advantage to have another person going to a medical center, which they get a lot more money for. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that's why I went to Texas. Okay. So during your time in prison – um, you know, obviously, you know, looking at you today, you know, you're a speaker, you're a community resource director, you host a podcast, you're talking about addiction, you're, you're helping other people. Um, 
what changed during that time in prison? You go into prison and, and you're an addict and you're you're selling drugs. Was there a point in time when a shift happened? Did it happen gradually over time? Well, the judge had also said that there was a drug program that I could do called RDAP, and they would give you it. If you complete it, you'll get a year off. So I would do a little over three years. And so I um, thought, okay, great. So I'm going to go to Texas. I'm going to do this drug program. I know there's stuff I need to work on. I created a list of the things that I need to work on. I knew I wasn't going to do drugs in there, which there's a lot because of the medical center. There's morphine. You know, people are doing lines right next to your face. But for some reason, I... um, I knew that I was not going to do any in there. I thought if I did stuff in here, then that was going to, then, then my life is over. So for some reason, I really, I feel personally, that was um, a spiritual experience that I started in Rhode Island because I, like I said, I was in shock that I was even in prison. So I did a lot of like soul searching and they always say about praying and, you know, I thought, okay, I don't want to find Jesus in jail because that sounds like so cliche and so ridiculous. But I really um, was praying to help me, literally help me breathe, like what the hell am I doing here? And so um, from that point on, I was really focused on getting well. And like I said, I had a great family, have a great family that's so supportive and um, would be there for me as I, as I went through the process. But then, so this drug program, all the girls in Texas were like, you can't do it here. It's too hard. They don't graduate anybody. And I said, well, I'm not going to do drugs or have sex. Those are the two things you can trouble for fights and stuff. So I'll be fine. And so I went in there, I did the best of my ability and I ended up getting kicked out because they said I was inauthentic and, um, what? that yeah, it, it it was it was devastating beyond belief. I now know that that is that is the fuel and the pain that I felt there is what fuels my passion right now mm-hmm. to fix things. But um, there was they start with thirty two girls and one by one they would quit just because of the enormity of the way that they treated you and what they asked you to do. And so I would get mad because most of these girls didn't have any support and they needed help. I mean, I were talking bad abuse, horrific circumstances, and they would be super flip with them, um, the counselors there. And so that got me mad and and so, but I wasn't going to quit. I thought no matter what, I'm not quitting because I'm going home. You know, you can do whatever you want to me. And then a few weeks before I was supposed to go home, they kicked me out. And so I had to do another year. And so that was like my bottom of devastation. Like we were like Carswell is on, is in a um, air force base. So I get kicked out thinking I'm going to be home soon, knowing I have to do a whole other year. And I'm standing looking at the jets that were flying by. And I'm thinking, I know I'm smart as these guys. I just got, first of all, I'm in prison. Second of all, I just got kicked out of a drug program for being inauthentic. And if I was authentic, I wouldn't be in prison. I don't even know what that means. Like they would, they would want me to be a certain way, but I learned that um, I've always been a people pleaser and I'll, you know, put myself second really and what what do you need and I'll do that that's not a problem and they weren't 
telling me what they needed, but they also had the keys to let us out. So this, it was this whole deep, you know, thing that screwed with you in a bad way, I guess is the nicest way to say it. And so um, I was working in landscaping and I told my boss, I said, I, I can't believe I got kicked out. And so he was a man of few words, but he said, Lash over, uh, put your head down, do your time and get the hell out of here. And so I did that. And throughout that time, I just did a lot of soul searching and kind of from that point was able to um, learn who I was learn how to be authentic, which meant learn how to use my voice, even though it rubs up against other people. Um, and that's just really been the journey that I've been on ever since. You know, I want to say too, that when I was um, in Texas, they had me at, and I don't think people know this. And that's kind of like my next thing I want to talk about when I, other in other advocacy work, but, mm -hmm. you know, because of medical issues, they send you far away from your family. They send you to a maximum security where I'm in prison with, you know, um, serial killers, which I still communicate all the time with lifers in there um, that I ended up being, you know, my friends, my people that I was with for a few years. You know, you're in a cell with somebody who's a serial killer in a, you know, small cell with four people. You, you really, it's so interesting being around people that you think, I'll be able to see some something that will show them to be, you know, have those kind of attributes and you don't, but any, but um, my point is when they had me at a care level three, which meant in the book in the handbook, it says needs help with daily activities such as eating, bathing and getting dressed. So when you're at care level three, that means they get more money for you because of all the effort that they have, that staff has to put in into you, mm -hmm. which they don't have anybody there really, unless you're on hospice that needs help eating, bathing and getting dressed. Mm -hmm. So I spent two years trying to get them to change that. And, and, and they didn't until the very end, right before I was going to leave, the counselor called and she's like, Christy, why are you a care level three? And I was you know, at that point I was like, doesn't matter. I'm all, it's been two years. I've been trying to at, answer, get that question answered. And just with the flip of a keyboard, she changed it. And I'm certain it's because I was going to the halfway house and they don't want somebody that, you know, doesn't need any, any of those services to have to be a care level three. So it's all very, you know, criminal for lack of a better word in there yeah, it so criminal. Yeah. it is get, criminal they couldn't get money for you anymore in the halfway house um didn't have people to uh to do that so they didn't they, that's that's crazy i mean it's not surprising right because it, it, it's criminal it, it's what it is it's criminal I mean, they're, they're they're stealing money in order yeah to, and i'm uh, certain that's why they kick people out of the drug program and that's why or you know, whatever they do. And that's why I'm, I'm certain that's part of the reason that I got kicked out because mm -hmm. then I'm there another year. And I wouldn't believe it. If I was listening to somebody telling me that I'd be like, mm, eh, there's gotta be more to it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, so since you've gotten out now, can you tell us a little bit about um, the work you've been doing? You're working for a nonprofit now. How did you get involved in that? And, and what type of work is it? Well, I um, I first got involved into a reentry court 
when I was in Texas, there was a book that showed all the states and it said all the reentry services and resources per each state. And I decided to go to Oregon um, because my family had moved to Ashland and I thought it would be, I wanted to be near my mom. So she'd feel okay about me being safe and being around her. And so I looked in this book and there was nothing in Oregon, like the whole binder was blank. And so I thought, man, okay, I'm screwed. I don't know anything about resources. I've never fortunately needed them. So I just figured there was nothing and I was just going to have to, you know, climb my way out of this guilt and shame of incarceration because you always hear how hard everything's going to be. And so a reentry court, there's a um, gal named Judge Ann Aiken, who's the federal judge. And she actually, once a month, she'll come to reentry court and the people that have got out of prison, most of which she, she is sentenced, she then will um, say, okay, you're out sometimes 20, 30, 10 years. And she says, what can I do to help? And she like boots on the ground, makes phone calls to get your license, to help you, to get mm -hmm. counseling, to get um, anything you need. And so she was um, very um, persuasive in me going to college. And so I ended up going to college and I graduated last June. Um, That's awesome. Uh, Thank you. And it was called Innovation and Leadership, a Bachelor of Science. Mm -hmm. And there was a nonprofit nearby. It was called Reclaiming Lives. And it's the Recovery Cafe. And we they help people um, coming out of prison, which I didn't even know was right down the street from where I was, and then help people get sober and recovery plans and stuff. And um, so I would go here. It's where I am right now after school just to volunteer. And so... Um, I ended up getting a job here. Now I work here full time. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's good. And how did the how the podcast come about? Well, um, when I was just volunteering, uh, the judge, my judge, had said, "Hey, Christy, what do you think about doing a podcast?" I said, "Oh, I, I would love to do that." So I called Stephanie, Reclaiming Lives, and I said, "What do you think about a podcast?" And she started laughing. She goes, "We had already thought about that," and she and that's when she asked me to go part time. And now I'm, in fact, this week is my old time, my first week old time. So um, it ended up, it ended up being something that we had both thought of and it, it ended up working out really good. Just, it's called the Survivors of Addiction. And uh, you have what, four or five episodes that are up now? Yeah, there's four episodes. One of them is part one and two. Okay. And what can people, I mean, what can people expect to, to hear on the podcast? Uh, it's Brandon Orr and I, we come from like two completely different childhoods, different lives, but we both ended up in prison and both in recovery. And so we kind of talk about our own experience, our own personal thoughts about recovery and peer support mentoring. And we have guests on and, um, uh, it's really very transparent of all the things that we've gone through and our relationship with each other and the people that we help on a regular basis. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've checked out uh, one of the episodes and I plan on listening to uh, to more of them going forward. So I want to encourage my audience to subscribe to that podcast, Survivors of Addiction. And one more question for you. I've been recently, I've been trying to remember to ask this to all my guests, but as you look ahead five years, 10 years from now, look out into the future, what do you want for yourself? Where do you see yourself five, 10 years from now? Wow. 
Um, you know, just this morning I was thinking I would have never imagined myself where I am now from somebody who grew up in California, who's a beach girl and love fashion to now being in Oregon, working with legislature on criminal history boxes on college applications and um, helping people get sober and being a, a advocate for people coming out of prison. Um, I, I, what I'm doing right now, I love, I love, um, squashing stigma. I like, um, just really sharing my experience to kind of change the narrative for people in prison to know that, yeah, when they get out, it is hard, but there's a million resources. So I guess five to 10 years, I'd love to have, um, be a speaker. I, I, I've kind of been on that path, um, with, with the COVID kind of squashed that for a little bit, but um, I wrote a book and just looking for an agent actually awesome. for that. But um, yeah, I think just speaking about the experience to make it easier for other people, because like I said, before I went in, I had no idea um, the tragedies and horrors of prison. And I had no idea that most people in there just have trauma yeah, you're going to get some bad people, but for the most part, they're amazing people. And so I want to give a lot of um, opportunity for people incarcerated. And the other thing, there are so many people doing amazing work. I had no idea. I, and even the people that I talked to coming out of prison, they have no idea there's resources. Um, I know Malik is the one that um, kind of introduced us. And, right. you know, there's someone that has, that writes religiously into people in prison and cheers them on and encourages them. And it's such, uh, such a bright light, which I appreciate so much. I don't think they realize, and Amy with Can Do Clemency, you know, works tirelessly at helping people come home. And when you're in prison, you are cut off from the world. You are literally cut off. So, I had no idea there was people out there helping the way that they are. So I just want to continue to encourage people in prison to know that they're not alone. And, and there are lots of people, Karen Morrison from freedom fighters. There are tons of people doing great work. So I want to be involved with all of that. Topeka Sam and um, Loam, the ministries. There's just so many people doing great stuff. Yeah, it's, it's it's so amazing. I mean, and, and your story is a great example of it. But uh, there's so many people who, once they get out of prison, you know, they immediately turn back around and you know think, how can I help? You know, how can how can we make this transition easier for other people um, reintegrating? Um, it's so it's it's almost like growing based on that as we're seeing, you know, more clemency and more compassionate release. And I, I mean, I feel like I've seen it just in the past like year here with, uh, with more people getting out that there's so many people who just got out who are, you know, ready to lend a hand. It's amazing to see. Yeah. And that's the thing besides um, helping others. That's what fuels, I think our own growth and healing and joy. Mm-hmm. Because, it, you know, you wouldn't think, I mean, a lot of people say you want to, when you get out, you want to run from prison, but really just being of service and even people not, that have not been in prison that can be of service, that's where the joy just really expands and connects, connects humanity, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been great talking with you, Christy. I want to give you a one more chance to plug anything that you want to plug. And if you want to give 
any parting advice or words of wisdom to uh, the audience out there? Well, um, I have my, my website's christylashover.com. And as John said, for our podcast called The Survivors of Addiction from Reclaiming Lives. And if anyone's being released to Oregon, we have a um, we have a big nonprofit that will help with everything from beginning to end, getting out. And um, boy, I want to thank Malik for um, introducing us and for all the work that he does. And I think um, just want to tell people that they aren't alone. There always is always someone going through something else. And that the more transparent you are about your story, the more shame is released and the more you can live into your superpower of helping others. Thank you, John, so much for having me here. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Hey, everybody, taking a quick break here from the show. Wanted to remind you all to check out uh, my man, Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, and his new song, Free Ross. If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode Felony Friday, episode 230. Interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song, uh, Free Ross. It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of freeing Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards Freeing Ross Ulbricht. So please check it out. These are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes and they sever your ties from your business loved ones and family wide. New slave labor, they barely pay you. Don't care about work ethic. Hope you all enjoyed that interview on Finding Freedom, another awesome guest. And hopefully you guys also have subscribed to the Lions of Liberty podcast and you're getting all three of our unique shows in your uh, little listening device delivered to your ears. Um, If you haven't, please do that. Just go to your app, you know how to do it, and subscribe. You can also leave us a five-star review and a nice comment. We would prefer if you did it on Apple Podcasts, but anywhere you can on the internet, please leave us a positive comment. Also, the three shows that we have, um, Monday's show with uh, Mark Clare, our flagship program, our longest-running program, and uh, on Wednesday, Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams. Um, those guys have been killing it, and I am so excited about the direction of Lions of Liberty. Um, we're seeing some awesome numbers right now, and we're going to continue to grow, so it's great stuff. If you want to support us, we would love that too. Please go to patreon.com slash Liberty. You can uh, support us for as little as a couple bucks, or if you get in at a higher level, you get merchandise and access to us and all the way up to you can advertise on the show or get to even produce a show. So check it all out, patreon.com slash Liberty. And if you haven't checked it out yet, please consider checking out the Lions of Liberty store where we have some awesome t-shirts. We have a Taxation is Death t-shirt with an awesome design. We have a Wax On Tax Off t-shirt. And we're always coming up with new ideas and adding new t-shirt designs to the store. Check that out at lionsofliberty.store. And if you're in the pride, you get a discount on anything you buy in the store. So you do both of those things and you win. That's all I got, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This is John Odermatt signing off. 
always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.